Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte Dennett is an attorney, an author, and an investigative journalist. She was born in Beirut, Lebanon. She became a roving correspondent for the Middle East Sketch in 1973 and a reporter for the Beirut Daily Star. Escaping Lebanon's civil war in 75, she returned to New York, where she met her future husband, Gerald Colby, and they spent the next 18 years researching and writing Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. She has written for The Nation, The Los Angeles Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Huffington Post, and The Vermont Law Journal. In 2010, she authored The People vs. Bush, based on her campaign for Vermont Attorney General with legendary prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi. Uh, Charlotte Dennett, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Hey there. Good to be here. Great to have you on. I don't know uh, why I haven't before. Uh, You and I worked together uh, back uh, the last time there was a Republican president and people seemed to care about things and we were trying to hold the Bush and Cheney gang accountable in any way possible. Um, But but I saw you uh, give a presentation at a conference in Vermont recently about oil in the Middle East uh, where you talked about your father which was a story I had never known. Uh, who who was your father? My father was Daniel C. Dennett, and he was a Islamic scholar and a professor of European history right before World War II when he was plucked out of academia to join the Office of Strategic Services, which is the uh, predecessor to the CIA. It was the first real intelligence service set up by the United States in the early days of uh, U.S. involvement in World War II. Yeah, and you've been uh, working on learning more in uh, more recent years about what it was he was doing, right? Because he died when you were just weeks old in 1947? Yes, that's true. Uh, I was born in Beirut, and he was stationed in Beirut. And he uh, had a huge role in that area. In fact, some would say he's he was America's first master spy in the Middle East. He ran a lot of agents. And I had become interested in him around the mid-'70s, when back in the United States I, I had left Lebanon when the Civil War was raging, there were a lot of revelations about the CIA that had come out, and it got me wondering, uh, what exactly was he doing over there? And so, with the help of my husband, Jerry Colby, I, first of all, went into the National Archives, where a lot of the OSS documents have been declassified, and I was able to find a lot of information there. Uh, but unfortunately, the last three months of his life, which I was most interested in, had not been declassified. That is, the first three months of 1947, right before his death by a plane crash that occurred after he had made a top-secret visit to Saudi Arabia. 
that got me started on the quest. And I've been doing it on and off for years ever since then. And, and do you have any idea why the CIA would think that the activities of an employee in 1947 needed to be kept secret from the U.S. public and the world uh, in 2017? I imagine that it has everything to do with oil. Uh, the Middle East is considered a national, sec <clears throat> a national security territory. And if you notice, whenever you watch the news or read the press, you hardly ever see any any analysis of oil, which is unfortunate because once you understand what the oil dimension is to the world in that part and in that part of the world, things start to make sense. Um, my father's mission to Saudi Arabia in March of 1947 was to uh, get a lay of the land in the uh, Aramco headquarters in Saudi Arabia. The U.S., because of the Saudi oil, which the U.S. had exclusive holdover, was uh, a huge prize for the U.S., and it was the cause of great consternation to every other world power doesn't matter whether it was the French, the British, the Russians, or uh, whoever. It was a big prize, and he was there to determine the route of a pipeline that was going to take Saudi oil to an undetermined location, terminal point, on the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And the choice was being narrowed down between... Lebanon and uh, Palestine, as it was still then known at the time, Haifa, Palestine. And one of the things that he encountered when he was there, that there was opposition from Syria, or let us say hesitation from Syria. They were not willingly offering transit rights to Aramco to send that pipeline through Syrian territories to the uh, Mediterranean. And I, w I was subsequently learned that finally, in, in 1949, which would be two, two years after my father's death, uh, the CIA did one of its first coups, and it was to remove the Syrian president that was opposing the pipeline. Gives yes. you an idea of what happens when you, uh, if you're a foreign leader and you stand up to various intrigues by foreign powers. And and that's the situation today in Syria. It's, I think, important for U.S. history for people to, and for the current situation, for people to grasp what you just said, because uh, I think a lot of times uh, Americans who are slightly aware of, of what their nation has been doing look back to the Eisenhower years and the coups in Iran and Guatemala as having been sort of the beginning of this pattern of the CIA going in and overthrowing elected governments. But you're talking about four years before Iran, right? Yes, it's, it's a little-known fact. There are a couple people who have been reporting on it. One of them 
is a professor at Clark University. His name is Douglas Little, and I think he was probably one of the first to reveal uh, through through his own research that there had been this coup that toppled the Kuwaitli uh, government in Syria. And then another person who has assiduously studied the history of Middle East involvement in the Middle East is Robert Kennedy, Jr., and I would highly recommend people check out the article that appeared in Politico uh, back in February 2016, uh, which lays out a lot of this history. It's, it's called Why the Arabs Don't Want Us in Syria. And one of the things he says is that, um, I'll quote here, so long as the American public and poli- policymakers are unaware of the past that is in the Middle East, Further interventions are likely only to com- compound the crisis. So, um, it, you know, that's another thing. We, the American public is presented uh, piece, piecemeal information on the Middle East. Hardly ever is there an effort to go back in history. So it, the combination of tracing the history of U.S. intervention in the Middle East and a focus on oil and on pipelines will clear up a lot of the cobwebs if, if people want to take the time. I, I read, Charlotte, that your father wrote in a memo, or at least a memo with his name on it, said uh, that the oil reserves in the Middle East were so great that the U.S. must maintain control of them at all costs. Uh, that does seem to have been the policy, doesn't it? And, and what have those costs been over the past uh, several decades? Well, first of all, I think that was from a redacted document where he was outlining what he was going to do in 1943, and I was able to figure out that he had to have been uh, referring to the oil of Saudi Arabia. Again, that was the great find in those days. Before then, Great Britain controlled most of the Middle East and the oil deposits, and once uh, the U.S. got that hold in the Middle East, in, in Saudi Arabia, it changed the whole balance of power. But, um, so yes, we control oil at all costs. Well, what were the costs? I mean, oh my God. Shall we go through the millions who have died in the Middle East since then? I mean, it, it's, first of all, one could say safely, I believe, that uh, the failure to rescue Jews from Europe occurred because American policymakers were too concerned about protecting the Saudi oil, and Ibn Saud, the the ruler in those days, threatened the U.S. that uh, if if the U.S. pursued uh, setting up a uh, a Jewish state in Palestine where Jews from the Holocaust, I mean, Jews who had survived the Holocaust could escape. If, if the U.S. did that, he would possibly cancel the the concession. He would, he would take measures. So U.S. policymakers were very beholden to him. Then subsequently, of course, U.S. foreign policy has, has supported Israel ever since. And um, you have to look at you have to look at the location of all these countries. You know, 
it's the Eastern Mediterranean. That's another thing to understand the Middle East. Get yeah. out a map and look at where, uh, let's see, Palestine, sure. Lebanon, Syria, going all the way up to Turkey. Uh, they, it's really regarded by oil companies as the gateway to Middle East oil. And I know of three yeah. pipelines that have terminated in uh, the, the one in Lebanon, which my father worked on. Then there was two pipeline pipeline routes that terminated, uh, one in Haifa, which delivered oil from Iraq, and that was built in the 30s. And what, the oil of Iraq was the great prize of World War One, which a lot of people don't realize. And then uh, another outlet of that pipeline was in northern Lebanon, and that took oil from Iraq that was controlled by the French. So you look at this, these maps, and then if you look currently, it, a lot of people believe that the uh, effort to undermine the Assad regime has to do with uh, Qatar, which is a Western ally. It's located on the uh, Saudi Peninsula and has huge natural gas um, reserves. Qatar, starting in 2000, wanted to build a pipeline through Syria to Turkey. This would have been a, a big competition to Russia, which uh, supplies 30% of its, I think, wait a minute, let me get the exact. Let's see, Russia sells 70% of its natural gas to Europe, and um, Europe gets 30, 30% of its gas from Russia. Anyway, this would have been undercutting Russian gas supplies to Europe, so they felt very threatened by this. The Russians proposed an alternate pipeline that would go from Iran and uh, eventually through Syria, and this posed a countermeasure. So what you are seeing in this civil war, are the, these are proxy wars. You know, with Russia supporting one side and the United States supporting the other, the United States and its allies, Qatar, um, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia are on one side, and on the other side is Russia, Iran, Syria. Can I ask Charlotte just for a clarification on the uh, uh, on the question of Jews moving to Israel? Because uh, it seems that, as I understand, in the lead up to World War II and the early years, there were proposals from the the Nazis to send the Jews to anywhere in Africa and South America. There were different locations considered. It wasn't necessarily going to be. Palestine. It seems like you're talking about things that went on after after the end of World War II. I'm I'm wondering what is what is the timing that you're referring to? Okay. Well, um, the timing. I I was not aware of that uh, involvement before World War II of the U.S. talking to the Germans, um, but the timing was around 1943 when, uh, in terms of the U.S. getting warnings from Saudi Arabia 
that uh, it better not favor a Jewish state in Palestine. Mind you, in '43, the word was finally getting out about the genocide, the Holocaust. And so missions were sent to see whether it was feasible to settle Jews in Palestine. This is what the, the Zionist movement wanted. And uh, FDR's government was very cautious, so, we, so it sent out envoys. And what came back was the word that if you do this, you are going to seriously jeopardize those Saudi oil deposits. There was even a plan put forward to try to uh, make Saudi Arabia um, a president of Palestine, if I remember correctly, which he turned down. But in any event, that's what happened, and um, therefore the failure to rescue could conceivably be linked to concern about Saudi oil. It it seems that at the moment this incredibly long U.S. war in Afghanistan is being expanded and escalated, and it seems very clear that uh, a motivation in starting that war was also uh, another pipeline route. Uh, Are you familiar with that story, and does it follow the same pattern? Yes, it does. In fact, It'll be very easy for listeners, if you want to look at a problem area in the world, starting with the Middle East and Afghanistan, all you have to do is Google country and then pipeline, and you will be amazed at what you see. Now, with regard to Afghanistan, yes, um, there has been a proposed pipeline for years called TAPI, T-A-P-I. I, and that stands for Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. And the route was to take uh, natural gas from the Caspian Sea and transport it to India. And initially the Taliban were used to try to pacify any kind of rebellion in the areas of the pipeline. And um, that went afoul, actually, shortly before 9-11. And uh, the rest is history. Um, There have been many attempts to get those negotiations going again. But meanwhile, the troops, you'll find maps that show that the majority of U.S. troops that were stationed in Afghanistan were along the area where the pipeline was supposed to uh, pass into Pakistan. And a lot of these military buildups are all to protect pipelines. Yeah, it's it seems like there, there have to be many factors in, in a war decision, but it seems like this is a big one. I, I've seen a study that showed that uh, a so-called foreign intervention in a so-called civil war is, is a, around a hundred times more likely where the country has large oil supplies or the intervener has a big demand for oil. Uh, So, you know, far outstrips any correlation with uh, humanitarian disaster or threat to the world or, or anything of the sort that we're usually told is a motivation for war. 
Exactly. And of course, uh, the reason is that oil still fuels the military. It is the primary fuel. And it was Winston Churchill who warned back in 1911 when he decided to convert British, uh, the British Navy's fuel supply from coal to oil. He said, we're going to have to fight on a sea of troubles. And the reason he said that is because Britain didn't have any coal. So it had to go out and find the oil in other parts of the world. And so that really intensified what I call the great game for oil that is going on to this day. Yeah, that seems to me the the origin of this oil craze uh, was to fuel the British Navy. So the, the the wars came first, not the not the obsession with the oil, and then the wars over the oil. Uh, it, it was it was oil for wars before it was wars for oil. Well, yeah, and and I mean you can even go into World War One, and. Uh, look at what was going on right before the outbreak of war then. At that time, the biggest concern was that Germany was beginning to penetrate the Middle East with a, with, with a railroad, which was called the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad. The Germans cozied up with the Turks and offered uh, a deal whereby Germany would build the railroad and, in return, Turkey would offer oil concessions on either side of the railroad. This was very alarming to all the other powers. And um, if you see what the ultimate outcome of that war was, even though so much of it was fought in Europe, the haggling over who was going to control the oil went on for years after the war ended. And, and just after the war ended, uh, Britain and France uh, carved up the Middle East and drew boundaries right. where they wanted them, and people have been fighting and dying over those boundaries ever since, right? Absolutely. It's very, it's very sad. It, and, I mean, look at, look at what's happening to Syria. It, it's just tragic. It, it's horrifying. And, of course, it's happened in Iraq, and now we're getting problems in Afghanistan again. So one thing that I I would hope would start to happen is for all the people that are involved in fighting pipelines in the United States, that they can connect the pipelines in their understanding of exactly what they're up against. it's, It's huge, but fortunately we are moving away from fossil fuels. Well, hopefully fast enough. I, I'm not sure uh, that's the case. Um, but uh, it, it's it, to what extent do you think the ongoing uh, war in Syria and Iraq and Libya and so forth are about uh, the pipelines? And to what extent is there just inertia and violence feeding off violence and political interests and profits for the weapons dealers and and all of this that's having been kick-started by the obsession with oil pipelines, but now it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah, I I agree with you. It has taken on. And uh, things have not gone well with with plans. I mean, there were plans to uh, overthrow Assad, and this has all been well documented. But uh, then what happened 
as usual, there's this proclivity to fund different warring groups. I mean, when you think about the French and the Indian War, right, way back in our own country, it's still going on. These are proxy wars. And the problem for the United States is that uh, it, it, first of all, made a huge mistake by uh, eliminating Sunnis from power in Iraq after the invasion, and not just getting rid of them um, from their positions, but also killing them. And so this created huge resentment among the Sunnis, and that has been linked to the development of ISIS as a primarily Sunni-led war. And what happened is, um, you know, some of this, it backfires. You know, well-laid plans go awry, and now you... I, I suspect that with the Obama administration, um, it may have actually thought that these rebel groups could undermine Assad. But when they started doing these hor- horrific uh, beheadings and so on, it, it became a PR nightmare. And everything has been very unstable ever since. So know exactly who all the rebel groups are fighting in Syria. It's unleashed, once again, the Frankenstein. You know, uh, the Taliban were the Frankenstein that were unleashed when the U.S. decided to kick the Soviets out of uh, Afghanistan and use these different tribal groups. And then the Taliban eventually turned against the U.S. So, you know, you, all these armed suppliers, they can get into the wrong hands, and it's a, it's a terrible mess. It is indeed. I, I'm not sure it was completely bad PR for Obama when, when ISIS videos hit the screen, because you'll recall in 2013, public pressure prevented his bombing of Syria. And in 2014, uh, the United States was able to go ahead and escalate its participation on both sides of the same war in Syria uh, with little opposition from the U.S. public, which had just been driven mad by fear of, of ISIS videos. Charlotte, we've been having a lot of technical difficulties, and I think I have lost you again. But we have been speaking with Charlotte Dennett. She is an attorney, an author, an investigative journalist. She was born in Beirut, Lebanon, the daughter of Daniel Dennett, uh, who was the lead counterintelligence officer in the predecessor to the CIA, the Office of Strategic services uh, there based in Lebanon, Beirut in 1947. Uh, Charlotte Dennett has been a journalist, an activist. We worked together on pushing for impeachment and accountability during the years of President George W. Bush, uh, and she is continuing to investigate what the CIA will not tell her about the last months of her father's life and about the plane crash in which he died, uh, which was reported to be an accident, but she is not so sure. Uh, It's uh, an incredible uh, story of U.S. interference in the Middle East with the clear motivation of oil going back at least to 
the middle of World War II, uh, if not before. Uh, we'll get some relevant links up at talknationradio.org. Uh, Charlotte Dennett, if you're listening, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.